G'day, humans. Do you ever feel that the pace of change is a little uh, faster than you might like? That the direction of the change is a little more chaotic than you might like? Do you ever feel somewhat destabilised? And maybe even that if you articulate your concerns or your frustrations or your fears, there'll always be someone right there to jump down your throat and tell you that that's an inappropriate thing to say or that you might have just devalued someone else's feelings by expressing your yearning for things that are comfortable to you. In the conversations around immigration and refugees and what we should do about the fact that we live in a globalised world on a single planet where all of us are just striving to get by and help one another and create a better future, that that is inherently destabilising, that that is inherently discombobulating. And we can have this conversation alone in the privacy of our own brains, fearful of triggering tripwires that are going to anger other people or of saying things that we're not supposed to say or of coming across the wrong way or of not seeming like we're allies. We can hide in our own heads, jumping at shadows. Or we can take a maximally expansive idea of what conversation is supposed to be. And we can articulate ourselves and try to not judge each other and try to muddle our way through all of this. Because the surest way to inspire a backlash, a bigoted, small, petty-minded, insular, parochial backlash against the kind of globalization that I'm saying is something we should embrace, the surest way to provoke that backlash is to stymie conversation and make people feel too afraid to be able to articulate their legitimate concerns, even if those concerns tiptoe up towards demographic or racial or ethnic or religious fault lines. We need to have conversations about things. And one of the big elephants in the room is migration, refugees, immigration policy, and the ethnic makeup of Western democracies. It's a conversation we need to have. It's not an easy one. It's a tough one. It's a conversation that sometimes, yes, I'll say it, uncomfortable. Terrific conversation for you today about a third rail of political conversation in the Western world, certainly in the Anglophone world. Immigration, border walls, borders, skilled migration, asylum seekers, refugees. I mean, this is a conundrum that goes back generations, centuries. And yet it has come into such stark relief in recent years with Trump and his big border wall and the caravans of migrants approaching the southern border and the recognition on both sides of American politics that the immigration system's completely broken. When you've got millions and millions and millions of undocumented workers in the United States living there in this second-class citizen, well, not citizen, (laughs) status, uh, something has gone completely wrong. Whether you want those people to stay or you want those people to go, the status quo is clearly broken. And it wasn't just Trump voters who know it. And then on the other side of the pond, you've got Brexit, which in its own way, although pro-Brexiteers will talk about it being non-racialized and non-ethnic, and it's not a small little vision of Britain, it's a big British vision of Britain, and we're going to be like Singapore in Europe, and we're going to embrace the rest of the world, and we're going to reach out beyond Europe, and we're going to strike up our own bilateral relationships with it. Yes, despite all of that, the majority, the average Brexit voter just wanted a 
a smaller, more hobbit-like life, less inundated with strange people who don't seem to come from your terroir, who don't seem to come from your neck of the woods, who don't talk like you and look like you. So what do we do with all this? Australia has had a particularly brutal trade-off where it has basically said that as long as we can secure the borders, the maritime borders, and ensure that people do not come here by boat and get resettled in a chaotic fashion, as long as Australian voters can feel like they're in control, then they will go along with politicians who allow very high rates of immigration and of refugee resettlement from refugee camps. But it's a bit of a Faustian pact because you end up with a situation in which desperate people are being turned away on boats or perhaps worse still or perhaps better still being rounded up by the Australian Navy and placed on essentially desert prison camps in godforsaken fly-spec Pacific Island nations. No offence, Nauru. I'm sure you're a lovely place with all of your bird poo and desert rocks. I wanted to talk to somebody who can see both sides of this issue and who can maybe chart a way forward and have the conversation that is so uncomfortable in Australia and in many other countries as well that it's the kind of, it's a barbecue stopper where, you know, it causes no end of fights and disagreements around the family dinner table. So let's have it out in a way that can model a way of talking about this, even between people who are on the extreme sides of the pro or anti-refugee question. Uh, my guest is Dr. Kim Huen. He is a boat person himself, arrived uh, when he was a toddler with his parents from Vietnam after the Vietnam War. Uh, and he's he's written books which are which have been very well acclaimed. His, the main one being "Where the Sea Takes Us," which was a biography of his own of his own parents. But his main job is that he teaches politics and philosophy at Australian National University in Canberra. He also uh, happens to uh, to be a reporter and presenter on ABC Radio Canberra. It's a fascinating conversation. I hope it helps expand your mind about the positions on both sides of the pro and anti refugee uh, camp. Enjoy this chat with Dr. Kim Huynh. My mum. My mum's my drinking partner, actually. We have a beer <laughs> almost every night. She gets uh, um, probably a third of the bottle and I drink two-thirds. That's our start. I must say, I've had some nights with old Vietnamese women who've drunk me under the table. <laughs> She's not, they're not, you know, I wouldn't say she, she drinks a lot or any of it. I, I, I drink more than most people in my family, but even then it's not very much. But um, they drink with gusto, you know. The yeah. The saying great. is, yeah. Is mot hai ba yo. So it's very simple. One, two, three, chug it in. It's great. And the, the beer is a lower percentage in a lot of the places yeah. I've drunk. So you can just drink for ages. It's very yeah. normal. Um, can you give us a let's start with a part of the history of <clears throat> Australian immigration when uh, when foreigners think about Australia, if they don't know much about Australia, they sometimes just think of it as being a white crocodile Dundee land of, uh, of outback, uh, you know, originally English stock without realising that it's one of the most enthusiastically multi-ethnic countries in the world now. Um, but it wasn't always. The White Australia policy was in place until the late 60s. Can you just give us a rundown of what changed after the Second World War? 
after World War II, Australia's in a bit of a dilemma, isn't it? Because uh, it's still wedded to this idea of white Australia uh, and the idea that uh, it was basically a white supremacist idea that, that really white people were better and they belonged in Australia. It was a haven for white people. It wasn't, of course, only Australia that had these ideas, but it was the institutionalised part of our politics and our immigration policy. But uh, the dilemma that it had is that uh, we'd, we'd been in, almost been invaded. We're in a war and there was this ongoing fear, uh, particularly pronounced fear of people taking over Australia to our north, yellow people. So what we're going to do about it, how are we going to get people in here? We couldn't get enough white people in here. So the, the racial compromise, the immigration compromise was to get the beautiful bolts, people from Eastern Europe. And we had to sort of promote that, that these people, uh, even though they weren't English, uh, they weren't American, that they were uh, beautiful and they were white. So Did you so say that the was beautiful bolts? The like beautiful bolts. bolts. That's what they were referred to <laughs> as the Labor Party. The beautiful bolts are coming. So they had to plug it, right? These people, uh, these people were beautiful people. They, they deserve to be in Australia. And, of course, they did too. They've made a great contribution to Australia. I suppose, the, the, I suppose that Labor Party followers in the post-war era were probably besotted by communism anyway and were pro- had probably seen all of the Stalinist propaganda of these beautiful muscular men with scythes in the field harvesting wheat and these buxom ladies and wenches with little newborns bouncing on their knee and they probably thought, we want a bit of that. Yeah, so do like, who doesn't like those square-jawed murals? <laughs> yeah, square-jawed, <laughs> beautiful bolts. Beautiful bolts. I've seen a lot of those from being from Vietnam too. I got to say, but um, oh yeah, of course, the communist iconography of communist Vietnam. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, and so, the, all right, so they start opening up the the uh, the country to not just people from England and Ireland, but to Eastern European. That went pretty well, actually. I'm reminded that our first immigration minister, Arthur Caldwell, a Labor fellow too, he was a great, you know, he's, he's a great figure in many ways, opened up Australia, he was, he had a massive interest in China. But I mentioned that it's always, it's always a bit wrought and a bit conflicted because he's also famous for the line uh, saying that, that two Wongs don't make it a white. Two Wongs don't make oh, a was white. That, him? that was him. And he him. actually said that in public. Like that wasn't like, imagine when people say that we are like an irredeemably white supremacist society and that things have never been worse for people of colour. I just wish I could put them in a time machine and go back just, what was it, maybe 60 or 70 years when uh, a a senior government minister is saying two Wongs don't make a white. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but, but whiteness is a very um, sort of malleable sort of, uh, movement and and sensibility and, and psychology it does sort of change but it's certainly far more explicit in the past and we're seeing that um, I sort of find it a really intellectually interesting and a period right now after black life li- black, li- black lives matter is, has burgeoned in many ways we've seen this reckoning uh, of um, uh, of racial politics and it's brought mm. an incredible awareness and and a new vocabulary, particularly to Australians, you know, contrasted with Americans, whatever our racial problems are in both countries, they're quite pronounced. But but Australians seem to me to have um, um, a less refined vocabulary and awareness of race. You know, obviously it's, it's different per person. But anyway, uh, we're, we're starting to to build that no, in Australia. Just follow that thought, though, because I think that's interesting. Can you give me an example of the less refined vocabulary of race here? Well, I've got a great example. I'm sort of interested in sports and um, uh, your American listeners too would know the uh, the case of Colin Kaepernick, right? Um, mm. The fellow who, who put his knee down, uh, the NFL football player, and started all sorts of debates 2015, 2016, 
uh, in America. And he's put his knee down. He kneeled during the national anthem, made explicit act of protest on the field. The same, all Australians would know, at around the same time, there's an issue in Australia with Adam Goods. Adam Goods. And what did Adam Goods do? He, he responded to, um, to, to a, a crowd member, a young, a young girl, who was calling him an ape in the crowd. He responded in the most dignified way and said that, that, hey, that's not acceptable. Can you get that person off the field? He was very um, generous to the young lady afterwards, as far as I could see. But that causes a national uproar uh, too in Australia about the same time. But note that the, uh, the differences in, in what black men do on the sporting field. In America, it's an explicit act of protest kneeling down during the national anthem. So that causes a great amount of debate. Here, it was a fellow reacting to someone who was calling him an ape. And, and that's mm-hmm. debatable in Australia. That, that leads to him retiring early with massive mental health issues, people booing him for over a year, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people uh, watching people boo him. That's what I mean by the differences in sensibilities, awareness and vocabulary in Australia. That's enough to spark great umbrage and a national debate, someone calling out someone for, for yelling at them and calling them an ape. And it, you know what I mean? That's what I mean. That's what no, I think the difference is. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the I think that there was also a tinge there of a, uh, of a sense among people who who hold sport to be very very important in their lives, which I don't. That there's that there is a certain rough and tumble that you have to go along with in sport, and especially in Australia with its tradition of sledging on the cricket pitch and uh, and sort of overt uh, offensiveness. That there, that you have to sort of give and take, and there's a rough and tumble aspect to it. And there was a, a sense that maybe Goods had stepped out of line by being by ha- carrying himself with a certain amount of swagger and arrogance, and doing these things of sort of every time he'd he'd be successful on the field, he'd uh, he'd he'd play act as if he was throwing an Aboriginal spear into the audience at people who'd been shouting out at him. But there was a, a certain playfulness, and then the moment he called out. A young girl who obviously didn't know what she was doing and had inherited this offensive language from her parents or whatever. There was a sense that he was being a little bit precious when it suited, and not precious when it didn't. Did you feel that? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is where there's some parallel between America and Australia. That the the black man who who stands up for himself is viewed in in radic in is particularly threatening in both societies. And, and here, I mean, it's interesting here about. Um, you know, Goods was called a um, a penalty puller, which is uh, on, on an American on an Australian sporting field is a is a terrible sin that you're somehow faking to pull penalties, right? But uh, that's racialized too in many ways. I mean that that speaks to this idea that that black people are somehow playing the system, getting all this welfare and that sort of thing. I, I, I suspect, and if memory recalls right, stats were done on how many penalties he got and all that sort of thing. You know, um, sports people love their statistics and really it was no difference but it was perceived as radically different that the black man um, is cheating the system somehow there's a slight link to um, to to boat people too that they're somehow coming through the back door in Australia they're looking to get our stuff uh, they're looking to undermine our uh, our immigration system Speaking of being con- being conscious of the the racial of racialized words and how to use them correctly, I think you're right. They're absolutely right that there is 
uh, a greater racial awareness uh, and certainly tiptoeing in the states. And when I, I know the states is a very big and complex complex place, so I'm not talking about a saloon in Alabama necessarily, but in amongst elite opinion, as you find it on the coasts of of the states, than there is in Australia. And yet, you know, I've I just I have used a term that you just used in the states, boat people. And the entire table stopped like it was like the piano player stopped in an old Western and the tumbleweed goes flying past and the saloon doors swing uh, eerily because they were like, you can't say that. Yeah, but that's a great point, isn't like, it? They're, not, you know, they're boat people. That's like offensive. So there's a whole kind of hierarchy of offendedness in the States that one has to be aware of and one has to navigate that that isn't obvious to the outsider which is why the recommendation for any non-american in the states is just don't talk about race at all because you're not more of the nuances you can't ask you know oh i understand that you know blackface in vaudeville was really bad and you know when you were mocking black people that was terrible but why exactly is it that you're not allowed to dress up as Michael Jackson at a Halloween party. Like that's the kind of question that will get you excluded from polite company and uninvited from parties uh, in Brooklyn. Yeah, so so I wonder whether you think that's always a a good thing or whether – because I do think there's a – I've spoken to African-American friends who come to Australia and have found it somewhat relaxing to feel like their white friends were a bit more blunt in talking about racial problems or – uh, I don't know, comparative crime statistics between Indigenous communities and white communities in ways that they feel nobody talks about in the States because everyone is treading on eggshells and, you know, the only people who do talk about them are racists. Yeah, there's a, there's a casual racism in Australia. We're casual sort of people that I'm very proud of too. Uh, um, I think it's they're just, I'd, I'd put it this way again, the, the, it's difficult to talk about race in both countries because of the history, because of the politics, but the, the Americans have a far more uh, detailed um, vocabulary and a framework for discussing race, where the casualness of Australians mean that we don't. Uh, so um, that we might be comfortable and casual with it, but in some ways I'm trying to find ways to talk about race more, to talk about both people more. This is a topic very, very close to my my heart and my mind right now, the, the question of boat people. I'm writing a book about Australian refugee politics that's massively overdue, but I'm quite enjoying it actually. But And also I'm a boat person myself, so I have to figure out what term to use. There's lots of different <laughs> terms we can use for boat people. I'm, 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 I'm leaning towards and I'm discussing with my editor, and she'll probably not like this, I'm trying to reclaim boat people. I'm a boat person myself. Mm. I came here as a young fellow when I was two on a, on a boat. Uh, I stopped in Malaysia for a fair time in 79. And and I feel like it can be a word that can be reclaimed and used by not only uh, boaties ourselves, but quite a few people. I, I'll say to you now, Josh, I've never said this before. I love boat people. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of boat people. I think about boat people all the time. I'm sitting in my bedroom. There's There's... Um, above my bed, I framed a picture of the, of the little yellow shirt with all crap all over it that I wore um, on that journey from Vietnam to Malaysia uh, with 502 other people. There's little pictures of boats uh, above my computer screen. My son and I made uh, three boats representing each of the generations uh, that we have in our household for our 40th anniversary here. I love boat people. I'm, I'm so... You know, I've spoken to many of them. Many of them are assholes too. Refugees are often assholes. But the, the creativity, the courage, you know. 
Let's define boat people because, you know, a lot of people, again, abroad may not realise that more than half of the Australian population has arrived since the Second World War. You know, we are an extremely migrant-heavy country. Now, most of those people who were coming in the 50s and 60s, they weren't flying in. They didn't have any money. Uh, You know, my dad was a boat person as well. My dad came in as a refugee uh, at the age of eight and they sailed all the way from Europe. Uh, But is it a – are you a boat person if you – like, is anyone who arrives who arrives <laughs> a boat person, or is a boat person a person who pays who pays people smugglers to come on a leaky vessel illicitly that just lands on the on the shore? Is that the connotation that we're going with? Yeah, that's a great question. Like, I'm thinking on the run here, but I think I think I've got affection for all sorts of boat people. I've affection for people who 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 have to remake their lives. Incredible courage and creativity that that takes to remake your lives, the chutzpah, to just end up in a new place and said, I'm going to make something of myself here. I'm going to take those sort of risks. Uh, even philosophically, I'm quite interested in uh, one boat journeys and and relationships to the sea. You know, it's a big thing in Eastern philosophy, but also in Hemingway's mm-hmm. writing and all that. You get a sense, you know, to, to, to risk your life in particular, but not necessarily risk your life, but, but, but it means you never look at yourself the same. If you've been on a boat and you've faced um, almost certain death, you know, because mm. you realize the insignificance of your life, you realize the precarity of your life, uh, and then uh, you realize what you're made of. You know, I'm doing a, an interview series with, uh, it, it's called, um, well, we call it Hailing Ali. We, it's not his real name. It's with the Rohingya refugee. I've been doing it all year. We thought we'd just do it and talk about what's it like for um, a rideshare driver to survive during the pandemic. So it started a, a bit more than a year ago. And then I just asked him, where are you from? And he's a Rohingya. And it's wow. the most persecuted minority in the world. We've been following him, hailing him down ever since. And he talks about it. He's only 15 years old. He's on. It took him four months uh, to get to Australia, almost died just countless times, but particularly on the sea. He said, you know, the last trip to Australia, he was in a storm, he says. He was almost, he was vertical all, all night. He's sitting in the back. He went to the toilet, hanging on this little boat. And he says, every point was interesting in that journey. Every point was interesting. It helped me realize who I am, what the world's made of, how how you can, how I can deal with pressure. You know, that's 15 years old, mate. He was 15 years old at the time. He's 24 now. And incredible poise that he has. And despite all the things going on, the pressures in his life now, he's on a temporary visa. His family's all stuck in Bangladesh suffering, you know. How did he get yeah. here, Kim? If it was only if it was less than ten years ago, Australia has had uh, the Pacific solution, which we'll get to. Uh, you know, of mandatory offshore processing of people who arrive by boat. Did he arrive by boat, or did he manage to to get to a refugee camp and then get admitted? Get, no, get re- he's full on boaty. He's full on. He couldn't be more boaty. He arrived by boat. Yeah. He arrived in Darwin in 2013, uh, but it was before. Was lucky man. They were mostly intercepted around that time. Yeah, yeah, he he made it through a small boat, uh, 15 metres long, 71 people. Uh, He was intercepted. He was taken to um, Cocos Island. um, And I don't want to give too many details, so that's enough. Mm -hmm. uh, All right, we'll we'll listen listen into the interview, I suppose. (laughs) No, 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 he got got here, but he came here, importantly, he came here uh, before July uh, when uh, Kevin Rudd said, that no one who arrived by boat or without a visa would would ever resettle in Australia. So he's on a temporary visa. He's on a temporary visa. He's still um, far from certain his future, 
but he's on he a temporary right in before uh yeah right and oh like yes the complicity of the labor party in this policy is something that we'll get to as well but i like that you i like your waxing lyrical about safety over the water and traveling over the the water i've actually my mum's a kiwi and so and we've got maori uh ancestry in on that side of the the family uh, by marriage and so i've got a tattoo actually when i was traveling a lot in my 20s i've got a maori tattoo which actually, which is the which is the maori symbol for safety over the water yeah, nice. Like a, a sort of a talisman for for safe travel, which I think is beautiful, which is touching. Yeah, um, yeah. Pacifica yeah. and Islands have an amazing relationship with water. I've, uh, yeah. Uh, and as I understand, I've read some um, stuff on it, and it's totally different. This is important for Australia too. Australia's got a thing with land and controlling our land. That's what hasn't changed from all our multiculturalism, the idea that we control this continent, that we've got this unique place in the world uh, that, 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 that demands a certain... Uh, amount of unity, homogeneity, and and control, and 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 that the sea is somehow threatening, and all beyond that is threatening. We have to control that as much as possible too. Pacifica and Islanders, as I understand it, have a totally different approach uh, to uh, and a, a sensibility, an ontology, a sense of being uh, uh, with the sea that that um, uh, most Australians don't have. Well, this is their home as well. I mean, the and you're right that the Maori used to control. In fact, the Tongans, the Tongan Empire, and the Maoris. If you go back, you know, many centuries into the thousands of years, they they controlled whole swathes of the South Pacific. I mean, they were an, they were an empire in their own right and had incredible navigation in canoes that were able to get them across these huge swathes of of the ocean. And I think you're totally right that that since European settlement. Australians have felt like they're a chunk of Europe that's adrift in, in a very, very hostile and lonely part of the world on the far side of the moon, essentially, and the borders of, of our land are the only thing that protect us from this vast, swarming, heaving mass of uh, Pacific Islanders and Asians all around, and that runs deep. Hmm. I'll cheapen yeah. the discussion, but uh, I'm reminded of watching Moana twice with my... <laughs> Twice. And, uh, yeah, I'm twice. Sure. I had to, but Moana is a great movie. It's a yeah, great it's movie, and, uh, and it gave me a sense of that um, that relationship uh, with the sea that any, many islanders have, uh, and it's worth considering if you're a land based person, by, like myself, even though I'm a boatie. Yeah. So let's talk about boaties. Um, you didn't answer my question about what a boat person is. Oh yeah, I said I'd incorporate um, a whole bunch of people come by boats. Of right, anyone um, who comes by boat. No, but I have a particular affection for illegals and irregulars, um, simply because. <laughs> yeah, what if as you I come said, an expensive Cunard cruise to Australia? I, I think it's different because I was philosophically interested in 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 facing death and and realizing what your life is all about and what the you know what I mean. So I, mm. you can come on a cruise that and that's fun, and I, I respect people who go on cruises, even despite. Well, depends how much poisoning there is at the buffet. If the, <laughs> Giardia crew. Uh, I do miss the buffets. I do miss the buffets. Uh, I think the component, let me inject this into your possible definition. I'm not sure that you need to actually be risking your life at sea, but I do think a critical component of my definition of a boat person would be a person who is leaving behind everything and is coming, is sailing towards the new land, which is an open, pa- a blank page and an open book with an yeah. attempt to create a new life. Like you can't just be you can't be popping in for a couple of years of work in Australia before you go back to you know to somewhere else. It has to be this is a new chapter. And in that sense, Australia is full of the kinds of people 
who occupy the the kind of historical cultural consciousness of countries like the United States and Canada as well this frontier spirit of people who've come from all over the world and who've who've settled here to try to make a a new start um tell us what your parents background was and who they were in Vietnam and how they came to to be dragging you onto a, a boat yeah, I like those bodies and your characterization of them too. It's far more positive, but I have a particular affection and political interest in people who've made um, irregular and uh, what uh, the Australian government called illegal journeys come here without a visa uh, because, in part because Australia hates them so much and I love Australia so much. It's a great conflict in me. Uh, I love boat people and I love Australia. Australia hates boat people. So decades and decades of evidence and experience of being fearful uh, of and demonizing boat people, uh, people just like my parents and me. Uh, we left in 79 um, from Vietnam. Uh, my parents had tried for several years, um, not several years, probably a year, uh, to, to get my brother and myself uh, out of Vietnam. I was two, he was four. Um, we've, uh, ours was a relatively easy journey. But it was it was harrowing. It was packed, especially if you if you have kids. You think of God. What I think about it all the time now. Since I've had mm. kids, would I do that with my son? I really think about that hard. Would I do that? I, I don't know if I would. Uh, and even though well, I know what, their what circumstances. Place, well, sorry, place us in time here. The Vietnam War has ended, and your parents are in peril. Why? They're not. They're in peril. They're in. It was all about me, my brother and I. They're in. They were. They were sort of senior public servants. My dad. They're in the electricity authority. They weren't put in concentration camps like others, but they could really. They could see that there was no future in Vietnam um, for my brother and for my good self. You know, um, and and they decided. You know that they were copying shame every day. Uh, people came into their house and. Uh, and took all their stuff, camped out in there, and watched them, surveilled them um, for for, um, for uh, having for a couple of weeks. With the Americans, not for having cooperated with the Americans, for being petit bourgeoisie, for being small business mm. people. Right. Um, so, uh, I mean, that's how widespread it was. Uh, there was a saying at the time, I often quote that uh, if lamp posts could walk, then they would go too. But at the same time, I'm quite, you know, I'm quite open about this. Uh, there's a there's a great, you often. There's a great, um, a certain pressure and un- understandable pressure amongst refugees to say that they were political refugees. They weren't economic refugees, right? But it's hard to, yeah. hard to differentiate in all honesty. Like, as I said, people came into our house and took all our stuff. That's an economic thing, but you can understand why you'd want to flee uh, after yeah. someone's done that. And there was a threat of being sent to the hinterlands to a re-education camp. But, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, refugees will generally and wisely always say that um, that they fled for freedom, but freedom is it means a lot of things, and there's uh, economic reasons tied up on that. But you don't want to be referred to as an economic refugee, right? Because then you're greedy. Then it's all about yeah. The money. Well, you're not a real refugee, are you? You're just sort of looking for a better life. Uh, yeah. and, and yet, as you say, a lot of people who we think of as being uh, easy slam dunk cases of legitimate refugees are, if you sort of really interrogate it, not strictly speaking, political refugees. I mean, my grandparents, my grandmother fled Europe because she'd been hunted by the Nazis her entire youth. But then uh, when at the point at which she was coming to Australia in, I 
guess it was 51 or something, there was no well-founded fear of political persecution. Uh, it was just that she was totally penniless and had no future for uh, for my dad and his sister. So they were allowed to come here as refugees, even though, strictly speaking, they weren't fleeing imminent political oppression. Mm, absolutely. And, and that's the start of a period um, after World War II and during the Cold War where defining refugees is relatively easy uh, because there's there's them and there's us there's the there's the soviets and there's the liberal democracies right so uh, and refugees are scientists they're ballet dancers they're artists and, and they're ideological trophies to say that that people are fleeing authoritarianism um to seek us to seek freedom but uh but that all after 89 uh, and after and into the nineties, that all becomes more furry. Why are people? Um, uh, what are pe- what are people fleeing? And, and what are they coming um, to? Let's say industrialized countries um, in search of. Uh, and and there's lots of different types of people fleeing that that aren't highly qualified scientists or wonderful ballet dancers. And and that's sort of why <laughs> I mean, we're in this situation. But we're. I mean. Were, were people who were people fleeing Soviet communism ever a large proportion of the Australian refugee intake? Uh, no, they, they weren't. But that's why it also it's easier to uh, to take them in. There's not as many of them. No. Um, so, uh, and as I said, they have ideological value. Um, but in part, that's Vietnamese are interesting because they're sort of at that fulcrum point, aren't they? Um, so, uh, so th- there's still a sense that they were fighting on our side. And there's mm. a great challenge, of course, as we were the first really non-white. Um, 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 I struggle to use wave or phase of of um, of asylum seekers and migrants coming to Australia. But ideologically, um, other than the brief uh, Whitlam period in in the 70s, ideologically the Vietnamese were still uh, evidence that, that of Australia being a freedom loving place, um, where where and and we were still ideological allies uh, with Australia. Since then. It's harder to talk about refugees as being politically allied to you, you know, right. and often they're, they're religiously and ethnically, um, seemingly quite different to your society if they're coming by boats. So anyway. what you're saying is that the, in terms of the the sales pitch to the broad heartland of Middle Australia, it's easier to sell them on the refugee project if the refugees are all brilliant Soviet scientists who are being expelled by the the evil empire than if they're a ragtag team of rather suspicious-looking Middle Eastern uh, Muslims. Absolutely. And yeah. and there's other things going on there too. There's some people, one of the un- uncomfortable questions that's sometimes asked um, of of globalisation and, and irregular migration and refugees, asylum seekers, that sort of thing is, why is it that at a time in the 90s when everything's opening up in the world, people think, when monies and people, some people are moving freer than ever, uh, when technology's burgeoning, allowing us to communicate with each other, that, the, that there are countries, particularly rich industrialised countries, that are putting up higher and harsher walls than ever. What's going on there? You know, that a lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out that, that seeming contradiction. Uh, but it strikes me in discussing it with students that it's, it's not that tricky in some ways, and Australia's a great way to figure it out. You know, we've had the, 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 the great Howard era uh, from 96 to 07 was a period of incredible economic liberalisation and also incredible borders, uh, up, uh, putting up incredible borders 
um, particularly against uh, boat people. And the rationale is that Australia is a pretty conservative place and people are, are generally conservative. This is speaking to my Australian politics mates um, uh, in Australia. You know, we don't pass many referenda. We don't change our constitution uh, very often. And, and that means that if you're going to change things radically in an economic sense, if globalisation is happening, we're rubbing up against different sorts of people like we never have before, then you've got to offset that somehow with some sort of social conservatism. And that explains a lot of the, the governments uh, throughout the 90s and the early noughties. And a, a, key, uh, uh, a key example of your social conservativeness and your idea that you can protect ways of living, that you can protect um, the actual the type of people that are coming to society is through borders. It's interesting that that's your analysis. And you also said earlier that Australians hate boat people. I don't, I don't see any evidence for that. I see evidence for successive administrations uh, making political hay by activating a, a certain flank of the Australian population with fear-mongering messages about unauthorised immigration into Australia and, and boat people being the target of that kind of uh, crude rhetoric. But it, when you talk about the sort of cultural conservatism and social conservatism of Australians and their suspicion of boat people, I, I balance that against the fact that we are one of the most successful multicultural countries in the world. Now, sometimes that gets said as a bit of a punchline without people really knowing what they're talking about. But if you do break down the statistics of like the median, per, how, how close does the median person live to how many different ethnicities? Like Australia is second to almost none. I mean, most Australians live in big multi-ethnic cities. Most of us don't, we don't have a rural heartland the way that the United States does with, with millions and millions of people who live in uh, fairly homogenous white suburbia. Most of us live within stone's throw of dozens and dozens of different ethnic communities have all arrived in the past generation or, or two. When you poll the Australian people, as we did on things like the gay marriage referendum, you get overwhelmingly progressive uh, social outcomes. So if if Australia is conservative and bigoted towards boat people, I would just say in comparison to who? Yeah, well, in comparison to to just about anyone else uh, in many ways. Like all of, I agree with all of that. I love Australia, but that's based on control. Rhetoric in places like the States is much more hostile towards uh, towards unauthorised migrants than it is here. I think it's hostile amongst certain um, um uh, a certain actors and and a large and proport people in the population, but I'll give you an, an example. Recently, uh, I had admittedly, of course, it was an, a, an activist and a politician for um, um, uh, for immigrants coming to America. But in America, I'll often hear people who are advocating for um, for people in Central and and Latin America um, uh, coming to America. That there's at least within the discourse and discussion, there's a sense you'll sometimes hear of uh, uh, an, an understanding of the push factors that are that are driving people from Central America right now coming into the states, um, and 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 you almost rarely hear that in Australia. What what is driving people to come to Australia in the same way? And and even and I'd say in America too. Remember, a lot of these people, they're, a lot of people in America accept that they're refugees, even though technically they're not political prisoners in the same way that the 51 Convention 
would define them. But generally, even those that they'll refer to those people as refugees. And 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 now and then, from advocates, quite commonly actually, I'll hear they'll they'll say that these people are coming to are being driven to Australia to America's front door, front door, uh, meaning uh, the the southern border of America. Obviously, in Australia, it's you'll never hear about push factors so much. Oh, well, you won't. You'll hear it sometimes, but very rarely. And it's always the back door from politicians. The reason why you don't hear the argument so much is because we've reached a better consensus about the importance of having a high refugee intake. Yeah, I think the consensus, though, is the consensus is not. It's um, firstly the high one. It should be the high refugee intake. Is we can talk about that, but firstly, I'd say all of the wonderful multiculturalism in Australia. Uh, is based on an idea of very, very strict control. And there's, there's um, Australia has, even in a normal immigration program, uh, you fill in those uh, forms when you come to Australia and, and you fill it when you leave. It's inc- I live in Canberra, so uh, I know that there's a, a whole, some of my university students will sometimes work in this, uh, uh, for this company that, that, that enters all that data. It's a wonderful thing, but it's an incredible amount of control. We know almost exactly who is in Australia at any moment uh, and, and and what they're doing. Uh, most most countries don't have that ability and don't have that disposition to have such tight control over their borders. And it's because of that. I mean, I'd phrase it in almost Freudian senses that Australia has a sense, has a desire to almost throw a chastity belt over the continent and the boat people are the invasive spermatoid that want to get through that <laughs> that chastity boil. You know what I mean? So so it's not some yeah, of course it's not all people who hate boat people, but but every government um since um certainly since the Indo-Chinese has been deeply concerned firstly uh, about boat people and they're deeply concerned about boat people for all sorts of reasons, but particularly uh, that it will incite all sorts of nastiness in Australia. And that's sort of what I mean by Australia having a consistent fear of what uh, unauthorised maritime arrivals will do to Australian society. Yeah, I think that is absolutely the correct way to put it. But that's different from saying that Australians hate boat people. Because I think having having fear of what unauthorised immigration is going to is going to mean, I think it's in it's inconsistent to me to say that Australians hate boat people. But on the one hand, but on the other hand, have been perfectly comfortable with one of the largest rates of non-white immigration into this country of any country in the world over the past half century. Like, if the hatred of if if the if the antipathy towards boat arrivals was motivated by racial animus, you would expect that racial animus to show up in much larger ways than just 8% of the population voting for right-wing parties like Pauline Hanson. You know, you'd expect it to yeah, be yeah. much more widespread and for Australians to be voting for, for governments that really significantly reduce the overall migrant intake, which remains very high, and the overall asylum intake, which whilst lower than historical levels, is, is the resettlement intake in Australia is, is very high compared to most most countries i mean the this thing question about control is really interesting and i like the i like your analogy of the chastity belt but i would just add to it that australia wears a chastity belt and keeps out the uh the stray sperm that are boat people whilst at the same time every night ripping the chastity belt off and going to town with all of the other other people who uh who australia has eyes for which is lots of other people from all over the world in other words there's a very high uh, immigration intake in ways that Australia can control 
and an extremely brutal approach towards immigration that it can't control. But you mentioned earlier, Kim, Arthur Caldwell, the first Australian immigration minister after the World War II, and he had an idea, and we can perhaps disagree on whether this was a savvy, ingenious idea or a barbarous one, that the only way you're going to sell a fairly conservative white population that's stranded on the opposite side of the world than where it feels like it belongs on high rates of immigration is by retaining the control that you're talking about over the border. And that is a guiding principle that has essentially informed Australian immigration policy ever since and has been ramped up by some people like John Howard, the Prime Minister throughout the uh, the 90s and, and noughts where there's a sense that if you're going to keep, if you're going to sustain the immigra- the high levels of immigration that, that we want to sustain, then you have to give people the sense that we know exactly who's coming in and that we're doing the choosing and that we're in control of it. Because the moment the average voter feels like it's out of control, you're going to get the kind of backlash that we've seen in the States. So what do you, th- what do you make of that argument, that maybe this paranoid control over the borders is a prerequisite to avoiding a Trump-like or Brexit-like backlash against this the sense of powerlessness that white, the white working class has felt in the UK and US? Yeah, I think that's a great analysis uh, of um, of what uh, different administrations in Australia have tried to achieve over time and how they've justified it. Uh, I just think there's nothing. I'd say overall, there's nothing. I think it's it's true, but it's that that unhindered uh, immigration can certainly cause problems, not only to the integrity of your inter, integra- uh, immigration system, but to social cohesion. But at the same time, I mean, the the other side. Those aren't somehow laws of physics that can't be changed. It's based on, like, it's social cohesion's based on our attitudes. It's based on our political leadership. Now they're not easy to change, but people change them to make them harder and to make people more fearful all the time. And our efforts should be to change them the other way, uh, to make us more secure, uh, to make us more open to make us more understanding of others. Um, that's what I'd say about that. It's a tough fight in Australia. I love Australia. I love both people and love Australia. That's the great contradiction in my political life. Um, you know, I don't think uh, that those two things necessarily get on, but I don't think it's set in stone. Uh, I think it's just a long, hard fight uh, to make people, uh, to, to help people to be more understanding for their own benefit. But obviously the costs of Australia's um, uh, border security mindset have been huge, not only... Um, uh, particularly uh, for boat people and irregular migrants. Uh, And it it hasn't, um, and often, we'll go straight to it, often the justification is it saves lives at sea, less people are making the journey and less people are drowning. But I I think those arguments are often made um, uh, in in earnest sort of ways. But really, it only defers problems. It's not like people are suddenly happy and go off with their lives if they if they don't make their boat journeys to Australia. There's arguments about whether we're responsible for them or not. But you can't be a serious humanitarian and think that somehow stopping people from making that journey, uh, they'll, they'll somehow thank you for, for it or ever should, or that the, their problems will be sorted out. There's a good example of this actually uh, recently in Australia is the Andaman Sea crisis. Uh, I've been looking into this, uh, interviewing this Rohingya refugee. So... so um, so the Andaman Sea crisis relates to the Rohingya 
in 2015 it starts and and many people who are interested in this area would have heard reports of of thailand and and malaysia and indonesia turning back boats in uh 2015 this is a sign of of the the ongoing one of the costs it should be taken into account when one thinks about deterrence measures at sea um and just that, explain the background yeah, sorry, here. To, to American, uh, well, to any listeners who aren't familiar with the Rohingya and don't, you know, and, and the sort of geopolitics and the ethnic <laughs> uh, conflicts of Southeast Asia. Oh, yep. So the Rohingya um, are from Rakhine State mostly. In they're, they're Muslims in Myanmar uh, and they're one of uh, many minorities in Myanmar. Um, but they're, they're regarded sometimes in the international community as the most persecuted people in the world. Like they have been pretty much wiped off the books. Um, several times uh, in Myanmar, they're demonised, dehumanised, systematically so, uh, and and this is really ramping up. It, um, it happens that they reckon regularly, uh, but but is really ramping up. Twenty fifteen, so people are starting to leave on boats. And if uh, I remember, correctly, wasn't there? Isn't southern Thailand? weren't they drive? Wasn't Thailand trying to drive them out, or was that, was that after they'd arrived from Myanmar? Uh, yep, so they've been making journeys for a while, but, but Thailand was pushing them back out to sea. That's what first made. Right. And there was also some mass graves found on the Thai-Malaysian border at that time. So I'll link it to America too soon. Sorry, you go, Josh. Yeah, yeah, no, I was just going to say, so you've got Myanmar, which is obviously this brutal military dictatorship, which is a horrible um, shitpoke autocracy, which is obviously doing its own evil things behind the scenes against the, this uh, this minority that it hates. But the what I remember from 2015 was that then you started having this spillage over to to countries that we tend to think of as being better on human rights and more democratic, like Thailand, uh, and they then start facing their own their own crisis as as they see it of 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 Rohingya who they have no more love for them than people in Burma do, uh, and so it becomes a, a kind of continent wide problem rather than one that's isolated to Myanmar. That's right. But you've got to look downstream too because it was also the time that Australia stopped the boats. So, so part of the reason that and as rational calculation from these countries midstream, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, that they were pushing back boats is they, they knew that Australia wasn't going to accept anyone. So mm. they said, we don't want people stuck here forever, so we're going to push them back. So that's, that's, what, that's what it means to stop the boats. Somehow you're saving lives at sea. There's a very concrete example over a period of months and, and, and just a couple of years of, of the, the sort of arms race that goes on that, that, that if you look at it over time is a logical consequence of any deterrence measures that other countries start doing the same thing logically. And then you have to up and up your deterrence measures. And, and so you defer and you deflect um, um, uh, the suffering but you really prolong it too. So what happens in the end? People are still, it's not like the, suddenly the push factors are changing. Myanmar's treating people better, treating Mohinga better. It's actually worse. Where they end up now? You've got a million people in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh. Uh, that's the consequence in part. Obviously, it's more complicated than that. There's lots of lots of vectors. But, but there's a link there between Australia stopping the boats uh, and, and if you want to talk about saving lives at sea, maybe you have, maybe we don't see it, but you're not saving lives full stop. People are ending up in camp somewhere else only months and years later and suffering even uh, more so in many ways. So don't get me wrong, there's not necessarily easy solutions and we can get to that. But if you want to look at uh, what are the consequences of deterrence, then then you should look a bit longer term. And, and a lot of people in America I know who are in these, um, uh, who are far more uh, 
have far more expertise than me are talking about the crisis they have on the border with particularly with children right now as being deferred deflected uh, backed up from uh, trump era policies and from a generation and or, or more of not dealing with the border in uh, in a bipartisan way in the states uh, in the sense that there's always been this tacit agreement between big business over there and, uh, you know, people smugglers and illegal migrants that they can come across the border fairly freely and pick fruit in California and then go back to Mexico. And there is, there's never a, a, a serious desire to crack down on that from, from the uh, traditional Republican Party. And that was where the Trump populist movement came and swallowed that part of the, the party whole and said, if you're not going to, if you're not going to secure the borders, uh, we will. In fact, there's that line by, I can't remember, was it David French or David Frum, like one of the conservative Davids in the States who who is a, um, you know, a senior conservative figure who says if if liberals, meaning smaller liberals, if progressives uh, won't enforce borders, then fascists will. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, which is... It does sound like Frum. Frum's a wonderful orator and he's a great critic of Trump, actually. After yeah, he is. And he was a, he was George W. Bush's speechwriter. He he came up with the Axis of Evil speech. So he was not beloved. Yeah, right. He's come around as being, uh, yeah, a good guy on the if, if you're on the anti-Trump side of things. So we, we've kind of dived right in, Kim, to mandatory detention, which is where I want to end up. But let's just back, back up a little bit so people understand what we're talking about because I'm glad that you raised, like, children in cages in the U.S., and the whole debate about the wall. And it's really interesting through the prism of America's immigration crisis to view what Australia's strategy over the past generation has been. We talked about after World War II, we're bringing in the beautiful the beautiful bolts. Uh, then the immigration, the definition of whiteness sort of gets amended somewhat. So Greeks start being admitted, Italians, there's a huge need for labor in Australia. In the 50s, there are big nation building projects like huge dams in the snowy mountains and so on. So they, they need lots of labor. So they bring in Southern Europeans because they can't bring in enough, they can't find enough English people who want to move out here. And the white Australia policy is the informal name for for that policy. As long as you define uh, swarthy Greeks as being as being sufficiently white for you, which, they, <laughs> which their parents probably wouldn't have, but they're, they're, the children did in the fifties. And then in the end of the sixties, the white Australia policy is abolished. Um, Indigenous Australians are recognised in a, in a referendum. There's this kind of awakening, as there was across much of the world in the late sixties, from the American civil rights movement to what was going on in in France. Uh, and Australia starts opening itself up to other minorities. And, of course, your family is part of that story, Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War being one of the only uh, other countries to follow America into that dispute then gave it a, an important moral obligation to do something about the people who were dispossessed from that war. And you are, uh, you are, you are one of those, those people. But then on the back of that, there's a lot of migration from Asia in the 80s this leads to a bit of a backlash and a, a, a flare-up of uh, white resentment in the 90s, I guess, in the form of Pauline Hanson, this, uh, this fish, shop, fish and chip shop takeaway owner from regional Queensland who creates her own political party, One Nation, and, uh, and it's essentially an anti-immigrant party. And then that gets co-opted by John Howard, and this, this is where I'll end my my potted history of the 20th century because we now reach the 21st century. Can you explain to people what happens when John Howard, this 
new conservative prime minister comes in in the 90s. 9-11 happens in 2001, and a boat called the Tampa approaches Australia's shores, and this is a kind of watershed moment in thinking about how we deal with arrivals. Yeah, thank you, Josh. What a great potted history. I'll, I'll add a few um, punctuation points oh, yes. in terms of boat arrivals to that. Um, it'll only take a minute. So you can understand boat arrivals and waves of boat arrivals to Australia in, in four stages. We've got uh, the, the Indo-Chinese boat people of the late 70s after the Vietnam War. And really, we're only talk, I'll only talk about boats that made it to Australia. So my, my, my family um, uh, waited in a Malaysian camp, so we didn't come here directly. Like, we were invited to come here. We were controlled, in a sense, and came here. So that's okay. So we only had about 2,000 boat arrivals or so from the late 70s who came directly to Australia. They're the ones that I say Australia hates in inverted commas, the ones that Australia is very uncomfortable with. Then the late 80s, they get about 3,000 Indo-Chinese people and, and that's the one that started mandatory detention, the unique Australian idea that um, if you come here, even if you're an asylum seeker and you don't have a, um, a, a valid visa, you'll be detained for the entire period until you can be regularised, find um, a, an appropriate visa, and that can often take years. And then the third wave is where you've got up to, is in the late 90s, and, uh, and, and here um, we're talking about people, this is globalisation era, as we're talking about people from um, all over the world and particularly the Middle East and all the issues that are going on there because of September 11 and around that, that period, um, and that's the third wave. We're talking about thousands and tens of thousands of people and the fourth one is in the late no- um, noughties, 2009, 2010. So uh, as you say, the, the key boat arrival was the Tampa uh, and that involved a Norwegian uh, cargo ship Picking up a distressed vehicle uh, uh, to the um, um, to the the northwest of Australia, it had 433, I think, mostly Afghan uh, asylum seekers on it, and it tried to land. It tried to say it tried to land in Perth, and uh, and this caused an immense spectacle. Uh, this was in August of 2001, uh, and the, uh, Howard um, and his government, the Conservative government, said that uh, decided that they couldn't land. Uh, they they didn't want to land they here. 2001. Sorry, did you say August of 2001? Yeah, it was August 2001. It's before September my, 11. Yeah, in my brain, it was a response to to September 11. It wasn't. No, I can look it up quickly. I'm pretty sure it was August 2001. Uh, the it's fascinating. No, it changes the valence. I've always thought, well, it's a boat full of Afghan of people from Afghanistan. So after <laughs> September 11th, there's obviously a an easy political ploy for the prime minister to make uh, to make hay out of the idea that these we don't necessarily know whether or not these people all wish us well. Yeah, well, he certainly did that because it stretched out. They had to come up with some, an idea of something to do with these four hundred and something people, uh, and and it's and the answer was the Pacific solution. That's right, and just so so non Australians get a sense of the gravity of this, it was it was a it was a Mexican standoff. You're probably not allowed to say Mexican anymore. It was a mutual standoff uh, of a completely non Mexican variety, where the Prime Minister of Australia was essentially telling this this captain this Norwe- this captain of a Norwegian vessel, no, you're not allowed to to come 
on a humanitarian mission to bring desperately hungry, thirsty people into into Australia. We're just going to leave you there offshore and we'll bring you all the food and water you want, but you're not going to land. That vessel is never going to land in Australia. So as you say, then behind the scenes, all of a sudden they have to go into crisis mode and go, well, all right, if we're not going to allow uh, boat people to come to Australia's shores, what on earth do we do with them? Uh, so the Pacific solution is hatched. Uh, what does that look like, Kim? Yeah, the Pacific Solution, yeah, and, and I should say on the boats, there's all sorts of images of, uh, there's an MS St. Louis, a famous ship in World War II of Jewish refugees who came by boat, turned away from everyone, end up going back to Germany, and mm. um, and all sorts of terrible things happened to them. But uh, what happened was the Pacific Solution, uh, and and as a, for the first time in Australia, well, what happens is that these people are taken Two Pacific islands. Uh, Nauru is a very small island uh, to um, to the east of Australia, and then Manus Island um, in PNG. and And it's decided that their their asylum claims will be processed there. And it goes along with the whole idea. And you say that we said it was a standoff. We said it was a spectacle. But in many ways, the whole idea was was to um, was to ensure that there and the order went out at the time from uh, Howard's people. There'll be no dehumanizing, no humanize. Sorry, there will be no humanizing pictures of these people. So the whole idea was to make sure that they didn't have a face, that Australians couldn't see these people. So every every deterrence measure, I think, has to be understood as as at least involving two forms of public diplomacy and communication. One is projecting out to prospective um, migrants and people smugglers to saying, you won't be allowed in, give up your trade. But always there's also a message projecting inwards towards the population. And here it was, uh, th- these people are not the sort of people that you want. You can't see their faces. They're not desperate people. Uh, we will tidy them up. We will take care of them for you and we'll outsource it too. So you never have to worry about it. So that's 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 the political message that I'm most interested in. Uh, in with respect to asylum seekers uh, of the Pacific Solution, we'll get them out to other countries and deter them uh, for, more from coming, uh, and we'll process them. Um, and and really, uh, that was the start of of uh, of certain strategies and uh, and um, offshoring of detention and of processing that other countries have, have come to follow, and that Australia's um, had now. Um, in a, in in a couple of phases um, uh, for for well over a decade that have caused immense suffering to people. It's also um, challenged our relations with our Pacific neighbours, PNG and uh, Nauru, and it's cost us a fair bunch, a fair bit of coin too. But the benefit is, people would say, it stopped the boats. It saved lives. Means that we can close up camps um, in Australia or, or detention centres within Australia. And also, as you mentioned before, there's arguably benefits for Australian co- uh, social cohesion because we're in control. We're in control. We can. Uh, this is what Howard would say, and also uh, other conservative governments would say, less so uh, Labor progressive ones, that it means we can take in more migrants uh, along uh, in, into uh, f- as part refugees as part of our resettlement program and humanitarian program, and also more migrants, skilled migrants who want to be here. That we want to be here and, and can work here and contribute to Australia. So it's a it's yeah, well, I mean, quite a calculation. 
even the bulk of the Labor of the left wing Labor Party would agree with that. As you said, it was Kevin Rudd, the the shining star of progressive politics, who swept away, uh, you know, a multi decade reign of uh, of John Howard's well, twelve years, I guess, of John Howard's uh, conservative prime ministership, and who came in with all of with a you know apologising to Indigenous Australians and doing all these progressive things, and at the same time, as you said earlier. He, he he even hardened Australia's uh, mandatory detention policies by saying that anyone who arrives on Australian soil in an unauthorised capacity will never be able to resettle here. So this has become a bipartisan thing, right? It has, it has. And there was this short period, he came in in 07, great sort of progressive hoo-ha, uh, uh, temporary protection visas, Pacific solutions wound back, but then numbers start creeping up again. This is a very uncomfortable boat question arrival. for refugees. Yeah. Boat arrivals, yeah. yeah. The boaties are coming. They come in tens of thousands from 2010, 2011. And this is a very uncomfortable question for refugee advocates uh, because, and, and then so, uh, uh, and he he reinstates, Gillard, Australia's first woman prime minister, female prime minister, reinstates the Pacific solution. And then Rudd comes back in just at the very end before uh, the 2013 election. And he knows that, that Australia's suffer, uh, that his party's suffering on this issue of asylum seekers and borders. And he puts in a harsher policy than anyone has ever seen. No boat arrival will ever be resettled in Australia, ever. Like you can't even come here as a tourist sometime. Like if you somehow you got resettled in, in, um, in New Zealand or something like that, you'll never be resettled here uh, if you come by boat uh, without a visa. So, but I, I think... I mentioned there's an uncomfortable question for the left is that is that period just before um, Kevin Rudd uh, uh, made that deal with PNG at the time, the, the regional resettlement uh, agreement, uh, was an, uh, the highest number of unauthorised arrivals coming by boat in Australia's history. And it was really tracking, like in the financial year 2012-2013, it was about 30,000 boat arrivals. And and during those labour years, uh, the the opposite, the the coalition opposition often say there was you know over one thousand people died at sea, which is uh, almost surely true. You know, it's probably twelve hundred. But they, but but this is a difficult question for the left. That's a lot of people. It was really tracking in twenty thirteen to get to tw- fifty thousand boat arrivals to Australia. It's nothing like Lebanon or uh, or or Pakistan or anything like that or Iran at times. But compared to industrialised countries, that's a fair amount of people. And and note, it's before the European border and migration crisis. So that's that's one of the uncomfortable questions I think for the left um, that we have to think through. Um, that's that that's probably that's really not a desirable situation. But what does it take um, to to um, to lessen those number of arrivals? You know, the, the great mantra from Tony Abbott, who came in as prime minister in 2013 was he's going to stop the boats and he did he did uh but it was from reintroducing the pacific solution and mostly it was from turning back boats they're doing whatever he can to turn back boats there's massive mm. costs with that too so it's a real but vexed issue yeah. it's a twofold policy that australia has which was uh, you know which is admired by unfortunately anti-immigration <laughs> figures around the world you know donald trump was uh, reportedly besotted by australia's uh, um advertising about stopping the boats and was retweeting you know australian government ads that were being published across southeast asia that say if you arrive by boat you will never be you will never set foot in australia uh mm-hmm. and 
this gets coupled in the Australian. So, to yeah, to the twofold strategy being, you send out the navy to to actually intercept the boats, and you use uh, you know sophisticated surveillance to find the boats, and then to to get them and to either turn them back or once they're you know once they're too close, you just make sure that they get resettled onto. Nauru or Manus Island, which is part of Papua New Guinea, into these resettlement camps, and people just sit there and essentially rot there forever until they can be resettled to another country. Like Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister, did a deal with Barack Obama when Obama was president to resettle many of the people on Nauru, and, and was it Manus as well, or just Nauru back to the United States, who were who were legitimate refugees, and. Yep. Then Trump tried to renege on that and had a very hostile uh, conversation when he got into office with Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister. But event- they eventually uh, they eventually honoured it. So the question for a lot of Australians becomes: Do you want to have this barbaric system where you're letting people rot on desert islands? I mean, this is not a lot of people anymore, right? How many people are on Nauru I now? Think- there's uh, Nauru and Manus Islands about 300. So about 3,000 people overall have, have yeah, passed through um, Manus yeah. Island and, and Nauru a bit over. And there's about 300 left. Um, uh, a lot, uh, about seven 800 have gone to the US. Seven 800 um, uh, are on temporary. Vi- uh, no, about 1,000 are in Australia actually on, this is complicated, but they're on, they're only here temporarily. Uh, they've been in hotels. They were medevaced here because they're, their medical situation was so um, so grave. That was another um, controversy where the Conservative yeah. government didn't even want to allow them to come to Australia for urgent medical care. And it just goes on, doesn't it? It was reached where they were allowed to. Because once you, I mean, the subtext here is that once you actually set foot on Australian soil, then we have all kinds of obligations mm-hmm. under refugee conventions and so on to treat you humanely. Whereas as long as you're technically on Nauru or a different country, then we don't have to worry about you. It's a bit yeah, like... Yeah. The Guantanamo Bay get out of jail free card that the US. Yeah, has yeah, that's a great um, analogy. But Josh, let me solve let, offshore processing resettlement. Let let me solve it for you and your listeners very quickly. Please. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Like it, it, there are there are humanitarian whatever you think of deterrence. There has to there really should be a bar of what you're trying to do to people and 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 effectively locking them up, giving them no future whatsoever. Uh, on uh, in places that in, will inv- almost invariably be largely hostile to them, it 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 doesn't even have deterrence value. The only value it has is is the domestic political value to say that we're being yeah, tough and we're deter- protecting you. It must have deterrence value if we went from fifty thousand odd arrivals and twelve hundred lives lost at sea when it, when the policy wasn't in place to all of a sudden the boat stopping once the policy was in place. It's minimal at best, and this is being fought right now in the UK because they're looking at doing offshore processing and resettlement. It's minimal uh, at best. What uh, The best evidence is that what stops people smuggling and boat arrivals, if you really want to do that, is turning back boats, is turning back boats. And and uh, the Abbott government was, was incredibly um, determined to do that. Uh, it had came up with it... Uh, it acquisitioned these little lifeboats and when people couldn't get back on their own boats they put them in those boats there's also accusations of, of them adding people to boats that they'd had already uh in detention and sending that back which is effectively people smuggling too there's quite a bit of evidence that that happened uh, on very uh, discreet and a few occasions but it was turning back boats that's the great fight i think for advocates of deterrence and particularly uh, the labor party right now um 
and I think it's a reasonable fight. You know, I, I don't. I think this is a reasonable debate to have. I, I think offshore processing and resettlement just is nowhere near worth it. It costs a heap amount of money too. It often re- ruins your regional because um, um, it's as a colonial feel. People know they're being used. You know, in Papua New Guinea, uh, Papua New Guinea, in Manus Island and Nauru, uh, they, they, they take the money, but they're resentful for being colonized like that. You know, it, it has awful. Re- um, 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 effects on one's regional relations and, and minimal deterrence effect vis-a-vis turn back. So for me, if you're into deterrence, the question should be, and you're a humane person uh, and you don't want to uh, uh, foment fear in your domestic population, the only real question is, can you humanely um, push back boats and, and, then, uh, and, um, and all the other stuff with respect to um, uh, offshore offshoring and outsourcing asylum seeking um, measures should be out of the picture. It's uh, uh, it's almost you know it's just not worth it whatsoever. Kim, while we're talking about what works and what doesn't work, and I want to get to I want to get actually beyond that in a moment anyway, because I the reason I oppose mandatory detention and offshore processing is uh, is because of a duty of care argument rather than necessarily a humanitarian or utilitarian. Uh, argument about it and we can let's get to that but while but let's just stay for a moment on a on a pure sort of body count about like if you are if you are completely utilitarian like ha- how would you how would you minimize the number of deaths of, amongst the cohort of people who want to come to australia as asylum seekers as refugees the if turning back the boats is the solution you don't have to keep turning back the boats forever at the same level presumably i mean the we, we are not currently seeing the same number of boats disembark from southeast asia and need to be pushed back because they know that when they get here they'll either be pushed back or they'll be resettled offshore yeah so i should go back to my previous point it's still a form of deterrence that really deflects problems and uh, and pushes them into the future that someone else is going to deal with um so uh turning back boats but uh, but it does promote some sort of orderly system so in actual fact it's similar to australia and similar to the us sort of people have a sense of what the solution is but it's impossible to get there because of the politics and also it's incredibly vexed situation but what what one should be looking at is a, a regional um a situation where there's a, a very strong resettlement program it's often called uh, a regional protection framework or or um, responsibility sharing is the principle behind it, where this sort of happened with the Vietnamese. It's it sort of happened with the Turkey deal in Europe for a while. But basically, you have um, uh, uh, countries that are in the middle that are transit countries who are happy to um, to house asylum seekers for a period of time, get their assessments going, uh, figure out who they are, uh, give them uh, uh, as long as they're funded by people downstream and by international organisations during that time, because often they're not as, as rich as other countries, and there's some um, a promise of, a reasonable promise of resettlement in the future. Um, so they're, they're protected midstream and, there's a, and, and they're able to move to better places or be repatriated. Most people are repatriated, of course, uh, after a period of time. It's only actually a small percentage, maybe 10% that the UNHCR would say of people who flee who will who need resettlement don't have any other options can't return home or can't be integrated to where they were so so that that's sort of the solution you got to have safe places for people to stay for shorter periods of time that might be months and years and then options for people who don't have any choice of going home 
and then everyone's working to help people go home. That's what that's what the solutions look like, but very, very hard to get to in part because of the politics. And the well, yes, and there's also I mean, I'd also just point out that since you mentioned the United States, the situation there, I think, is a good warning sign about what you don't want to happen, where the conversation around the whole immigration policy has become, uh, I guess, stolen or co-opted by the question about the border itself, Mm. border security. So like the rhetoric around caravans of Central Americans who are heading towards the border and who are creating a border crisis intersects with a kind of left-wing piety about the importance of honouring every person who crosses the border. And if you make it into a, into the United States, then basically you should be welcomed with open arms and uh, ICE, the Immigration Enforcement Agency, should have no right to try to kick you out. Uh, that there becomes a lot of a lot of posturing on both sides, with the right fearmongering and the left downplaying any concern about immigration uh, security at all. That that starves all that sort of sucks up all the oxygen out of the room and prevents Americans from talking smartly about what the whole immigration mix should look like, not just the one at the border and not just the one, not just the humanitarian mix, but the skilled migrant mix and so on. And, you know, I sometimes argue with American, with left-wing American friends and say, it's not all about just rolling out the welcoming mat to anyone who can, who can manage to make it across the Rio Grande into the United States. Like it would be a good thing if America had more Burmese refugees and more Romanians and more Somalis. It doesn't have to all be Central Americans just because you're located there. And the, the Australian attempt, I think the best the most generous spin that we can give to our political opponents on the mandatory detention question, I think, is that they want to see a very generous but orderly system. And I think a lot of Australians have bought into a fiction that there is a queue that people can join and that it's, it shouldn't be that hard for someone who is intending to pay a people smuggler to get here to make their way instead to a nearby refugee camp in one of these countries and put their name on a list and then get accepted by Australia or Canada or New Zealand or the United States and come here the patient correct way rather than the manipulative, sneaky backdoor way. Can you tell us about the queue? Like what options do people face? Yeah, um, that's there's a huge bunch of questions there. I really appreciate thinking about those. There, there isn't a, there isn't realistically a queue in the sense that people could wait forever in Indonesia. I mean, I think most years Australia takes in terms of recognised refugees that have been registered by the UNHCR, our closest one of our closest neighbours, Indonesia. We might take fifty people. Good year, we might take five hundred. Uh, and, and Malaysia's got you know a hundred thousand refugees there. You could wait there forever. You'd never come here. But there is a queue in terms of over since um, in Australia we we make queues. You know what I mean? There's um, um, uh, we make queues politically through rhetoric and even through our uh, our policy decisions too. For instance, um, for instance, one of the first things that uh, the John Howard administration did with in this policy area was to de-link um, the our offshore humanitarian intake. The 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 refugees that we take from camps from all around the world, that's called our offshore humanitarian program, it, 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 sorry, it linked that to boat arrivals so that for every one boat arrival, we take one less person from camps. So that, that sort of makes managerial sense in a way. But 
it does most countries don't do that and it means that that if you're if say if you're um a pashtun afghan here and you're asked to and you meet um a hazara who's come by boat you've realized that your cousin might not be able to come here because that person's come by boat so so it creates a certain a sense of the queue we do that all the time through rhetoric and through our policy decisions in australia so there is a queue in that sense but um, but uh, you know realistically, in terms of any understanding of international conflict and global politics, um, accuse ridiculous. That's part. Of, I mean, that's that's part of. I, I would say that's part of the political realities that Australians and all people in 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 countries where people are trying to make it to have to try to come to grips with and can do in an adult way. I think the the in terms of the mindset in how we should deal with boat arrivals, irregular migration, that there is a, a contrast that's often made in Australia, less so nowadays, that that in terms of that offshore intake, we take over the years it's been somewhere between ten thousand and twenty thousand per financial year. And they get pretty good resources, although they're, they're diminishing to resettle in Australia. We get people from the most needy places. The debate over that 10, 20,000 is by and large a bureaucratic one, is by and large one left for experts um, who have in mind Australia's best interests and also our uh, humanitarian obligations and our values. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's a debate that's had in very civil terms. We should be moving towards that sort of tone and that sort of um, approach to our debate about irregular arrivals too. It, it's going to be harder, but it's not inconceivable. Uh, like, as I said, a lot of these go down to, they're not set in stone, our attitudes about bodies and refugees. So we, we can be pretty civil about our discussions about what to do uh, with these people in need. Uh, but part of me thinks that way. We just take the heat out of, and that's that's a referral. That's yeah. in contrast to America where it's just, just laced with heat. Well, with, uh, I mean, that is the risk, I think. And this is why I have a show like this where we try to have bullshit-free conversations about uncomfortable subjects because I think the only way of of forging a path forward on any of these big controversial issues is to turn the volume down a little bit and turn the heat down and just figure out where the common ground actually lies and what's true and what's not and if there's not a real cue that these people can join then but we also don't want them coming in vast numbers by by boat on leaky vessels then what is the the compromise and the solution and part of the problem with having absolute positions on either side of this is that you do get the american situation where both sides hunker down into their trenches and and think that that right is on their side and you know the left thinks that the conservative side of or the trump side of politics is just about locking children in cages which is a catchy mm. slogan but let's face it we're i mean all countries lock children in cages basically if they have any kind of deten- detention system for unauthorized arrivals and you know many many an administration has done that prior to the trump administration it just sounds like a, a cute way of framing it if you're anti anti trump and i think his policy was abhorrent and horrible and un- inhumane but you know, we have to. We as Aussies have to carry the karma of Nauru and Manus Island as well. Uh, and you know, if when you were saying earlier that Australians hate boat people, and I sort of pushed back on that, saying in comparison to who? I mean, if you think about the the French allowing the all of the Syrian refugees to just create a huge encampment in Calais that they ended up steamrolling and bulldozing out of existence, and the way that they treat their African French communities in the suburbs of Paris and then you don't they're not even allowed to study racial disparities in French academic institutions because because of their secular uh 
constitution or think of you know germany or think of japan and the way that japan thinks about foreigners you know i don't think we're doing doing too badly here as long as we find ways to not keep activating the xenophobic sort of a fear fear based attitude of the australian people and can aspire to something higher and before we go i want to i want to touch on what something that is a bit higher which is too often here i feel like our debate about mandatory detention and refugees and immigration comes down to this macabre sort of scale of death where we're piling up bodies on one side of the scale and seeing which one has greater you know utilitarian benefit so proponents of harsh border policies will say look we've stopped the boats which means that we're stopping people from dying at sea which means that we can take more people from refugee resettlement programs and provide more uh, skilled migrant places in australia and we can maintain our high immigration levels and therefore at the end of the day blah 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 everyone ends up being ultimately better off than if we had a more humane immigration policy and didn't lock people up on these desert islands because then more of them would come and so on i think what that misses is once someone is in your care you actually then have a moral duty to them that you didn't have to a stranger like once the boat is on the horizon and you've got and you're on a navy ship and you can see those nearly drowning nearly starving thirsty people let alone once they've reached your country then the calculus changes then i don't think it's just about a utilitarian question of how you do the most good in the world then it becomes what kind of human being are you and what kind of country are you and how are you going to express those values in the way that you treat these people who are now essentially your prisoners is there any there there for you yeah absolutely there's a moral baseline to what we should do particularly people who are in uh, our care and and we should try to extend that line of care as far as we reasonably can so in actual fact you know the the immediate policy decisions should be pretty simple for australians there are there are families on christmas island right now a small family it's been in detention for four years the town uh Um, that that they settled in for a period of time, they want them. Let let them go. Let them go. There'll be no deterrent value in in um, in in not doing that. Um, there are there are a thousand or so people who are in Australia because they were suffering uh, because of what Australia did to them when they were on uh, Nauru and Manus Island. Let them out. No no no. There'll be no strategic. The people won't suddenly come on boats like crazy or anything like that. You know. Um, you should do that too. I think in some ways it's a really difficult issue, but those, if one has any sort of moral baseline, even taking in um, the considerations of deterrence if you're into that, uh, there's some pretty easy decisions to just be um, decent and treat people with dignity. What's the long-term solution? Long-term solution is one, like I mentioned before, it's, it's getting in between. It's the long-term solution is um, to have a larger resettlement program where the responsibility is shared and in between points in transitory countries where people can be protected and be, uh, and be offered um, uh, reasonable pathways either back to their home countries or, or to third countries. Uh, it's, getting, it's the middle uh, round. It's getting... Bypass those interim points and come straight to uh, Australia. If you come straight to Australia, now that's the tricky one. And as I said, that's the key question, I think, um, that we should be having robust and can have robust uh, 
but also, you know, generous discussions about whether they can be turned back safely. And we have had those discussions, I think. So that's the, that's the key policy decision uh, for me. I think in, in the immediate sense, uh, and this is a tough one because uh, a lot of people I know who are advocates would disagree with me. I think it, it is possible to turn back some boats safely and that's a reasonable deterrence measure and makes political sense for where we're at as a country um, in the immediate future. And would you just turn them back or would you take them and then and then put them in one of these interim resettlement camps in Malaysia or Indonesia? Or, or That's or... right. That's why it costs money. It costs more money than we're spending because you have to make sure where they've turned, they've been turned back to um, has, yeah, right. uh, not just leave them on some island to die. You've yeah. got to show that, that there's somewhere to send a message that you can to create some sort of reasonable cue, reasonable cue that you have some chance uh, and you know, you know, I can understand Australia and have a thing for control. It's not that it's I don't, I'm not for absolute control. That's where we're at right now. Absolute control, where even um, the smallest child will somehow break down the whole facade of 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 border security that you've put up. That's where we're at now. Mm. You know, that's where we're at now. That's it's ridiculous. It's 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 killing people. It's damaging people. It's not good for our soul. It's terrible. Uh, it's terrible for our. I mean, it's 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 crazy because we're in this era where we're where we're supposed to be reconciling ourselves to the historical wrongs of slavery in the case of the United States and indigenous genocide in the case of Australia. That doesn't seem to be quite so much on the radar of Americans, but uh, I suppose they've got other other fish to fry. Uh, and, and meanwhile, we're actually engaged in being complicit in this ongoing human rights calamity, um, which, yeah. even though it's only for a few hundred people at the moment, is is really morally indefensible it to is. keep people indefinitely i mean it reminds me of the israeli predicament of you know you, ca- you just can't have you can't keep people in essentially open air refugee camps in perpetuity and expect that not to have some kind of a backlash uh, uh, at least on your own sense of yourself and your own vision of yourself mm. as the good guy it really corrodes australia's um moral standing i think to be That's complicit right. and yet i i'm still not totally convinced that what you're proposing wouldn't be a magnet for more boats i mean maybe that's just the price we pay maybe we go if look if people want to get on boats and want to risk their lives and they want to die at sea that's their choice that's right we're not fragile enough to say that that we can't handle that 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 reality of international affairs either that we can have a few hundred few thousand people come here um, unannounced by boat and we'll do our best to save them you know what I mean? Like, what, what what is that with that idea? That's what I mean by the chastity belt. What is right. it with that idea that no one can come? I'll give you a, 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 an interesting stat. I, I'm trying to figure out what was the who was the last person. Everyone everyone who's here now is on a temporary visa. It's a different form of detention. Other people would say it's an incredible precarious situation. Everyone who's who come unannounced here and who might be here because of medevaced here because they were suffering so much. They're on temporary visas. They've got no idea what's going to happen to them. Except for, I was trying to figure out who was the last person to get a permanent protection visa in Australia. And, and from what I can tell, and, and unless um, maybe things have done quietly, the last person to come here without a visa and then and apply for asylum and get permanent protection was in July 2014. And, and the, he was a 15-year-old stowaway Ethiopian on a cargo ship. So, so he he didn't engage people smugglers. That's how much it took. Uh, uh, that's how that's how long it's been, and how much it took 
in terms of from Australian policymakers to just let up a little bit on the absolutism in terms of control and its approach to boat people to unannounced arrivals. The last person was was 15 in 2014. He's 22, 23 now, and he didn't engage a people smuggler and uh, and everyone else since. As as basically been um, had their had their suffering perpetuated. Can you do legally under refugee law? Could you do something like say that if you come here by boat, we'll process you on shore, and if we, you are found to be if you if you're not found to be a legitimate refugee, then we'll send you back to wherever you came from. But if you are a legitimate refugee, you're still not going to be settled in Australia. We'll 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 do a swap arrangement with countries like Malaysia or Indonesia or Fiji or New Zealand or whoever it might be, you don't know where you're going to end up, whether it's a good country or a bad country from your perspective, a rich country or a poor country, and in exchange we will take a similar, the equivalent number or maybe even more uh, refugees uh, from refugee camps around the world uh, through a resettlement program. So we end up at least ahead on the humanitarian count, but as an individual, if you make it to, to Australia, you're never going to get resettled yeah, yeah. in. Australia. Is yeah, that an a- interesting point? That's something, some sort of deterrence value. You're not looking just for a migration outcome. There's, there's, yeah, like it's worth thinking about. I think there's a couple of things to note. Um, that'd be very hard to coordinate internationally, but it maybe is a long term goal. The second one is that Australia tried it, something like a refugee swap scheme, in uh, and it was uh, found to be um, uh, unlawful in 2012. The Malaysia solution was a swapping of 4,000 refugees from Malaysia and Australia would send back 800 people who arrived by boat. Uh, that was disallowed by uh, the High Court of Australia. Um, a lot, um, for, not too complicated. Was, was that kind of the High Court saying, no, once they're here and once they're refugees, you have a responsibility to make sure that they're safe. You can't send them back to Malaysia where they might not be safe. That's right. And there's also issues of, of in those case, specific cases, but potentially sending back kids and there's different laws for kids and uh, the immigration minister has custodianship of those kids and that's not acting in their interests. But right. I'll, I'll have a more positive example of a, of a swap and what's, all of these issues are problematic, but the Turkey deal that basically halted to a large extent the European border and migration crisis in early 2016, I think it was, that was some sort of swap with the EU through Greece and Turkey that sort of worked for a time, although they're having issues now maintaining it uh, with Turkey. And and basically that was a one-on-one that people would be sent back from Greece to Turkey and in return uh, um, asylum seekers who'd waited in Turkey, one person who was sent back, for every one person sent back, one person would be accepted as an asi- as a refugee to Europe. So that was a swap that did work yeah. for a time. Yeah, yeah people problem where there were. I mean, I'm sure everyone remembers those horrendous images of uh, you know of people do- dead and washed up on the shores of Greek islands and so on after they'd tried to make the voyage from Syria to uh, to Europe. Was it in response to that that saying, look, we're going to process these people, but you're not going to end up staying in the EU? Uh, no, no, yeah. So that that sort of worked. That swapped worked in 2016, and and the, those figures dropped dramatically in terms of people um, uh, trying to um, make their way desperately to the EU because they realised if they just if they waited in Turkey, um, they could. So we're talking about large numbers of resettlement, though. That's what it took: a lot of money to Turkey, and 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 um, and large number of resettlement places. But I'd say once again you got to get short-term politics out of it and think about it in the long term more. We're paying heaps of money. There's no low-cost solution. 
So you mm. might as well do the humane one. You know, the, the, you, know you might as well go for the solution that that will make your uh, that'll that'll diminish fear in your population. That'll cost you the same, if not less. Uh, when it comes to this this stuff anyway, because we spend a, an absolute fortune on offshore processing and mandatory detention and turning back the boats and everything. So as you say, if you took all of that money and you and you you said, all right, let's come up with an actual sustainable, long-term, multi-decade uh, regional solution, uh, you could probably, the world's greatest minds could probably come up with something better than locking people on a desert island in perpetuity. Yeah. Um, Kim, let's just end with uh, your prognostications about the future. Um, we've talked about Trump and Brexit and, you know, those touch on a kind of, you said at the beginning of the interview, when we're so wealthy, why are we so obsessed with security and, you know, making sure that people don't come here and steal our our stuff at this moment? And there is this global thing going on of identitarianism and populism and i wonder how you see it panning out and whether you're optimistic or pessimistic about the future yeah where i find some optimism um is that given there's this um burgeoning of different voices in part because of technology like never before i think we are seeing um uh, refugees and boat people being able to tell their stories. And that's what I've dedicated a lot of my professional life to. And and the, the key figure in Australia is um, is Baruz Bukhani, although, of course, he's in New Zealand at the moment. He was uh, locked up on Manus Island for four years. He's a Kurdish uh, filmmaker, poet, writer, journalist. Um, and he's almost, uh, he's a public intellectual for Australia, one of the most key public intellectuals um, uh, of 21st century Australia, never set foot on in on Australian soil, never will. Uh, uh, he won a stack of awards, particularly the Victorian Literary Premier uh, Premier's Literary Prize for his book No Friend But the Mountains. It's a tough read. It's prison literature. He wrote it on uh, through uh, through a phone, um, sending it secretly to Australia through um, um, uh, a messaging app, and then having it translated here. He was one of these detainees. He was a he was a boat person who was locked up. Well, he was on Manus, wasn't he? He was on Manus. Yeah, and and and, and he um, was texting using WhatsApp or something to a mm. journalist in in Melbourne, and he narrated an entire book because you're not allowed to. I guess he wasn't allowed to have a pen and paper or something as uh, while he was being held in mandatory detention by and mm. uh, by Australian authorities. Well, outsourced to outsourced to the to the to PNG. That's an amazing thing that he was able to write a book, and then actually, it was actually a good enough book that it won awards. Yeah. But why your your exemplar for this? Uh, why I'm optimistic about it is as much as he he's got some um, very critical things to say about Australia, but but he does. I think he speaks to why I love boat people a bit. He says they give us new perspective. You know, they're the nerve endings of humanity. And Emim and um, and Omid uh, Tofiglian, uh, his translator. Is a scholar in Sydney, and and, and so they're incredible claims about Australia. Uh, one in one is that they he he juxtapositions or put besides Manus Island and another Australia that he's another island, and that he and he builds it up. But it's Australia. He says it's Australians that are not free. That somehow we've managed to have in, in, creative and intellectual freedom on Manus, despite all those things uh, that are keeping us down, that are brutalizing us. But we we can see the world, that we have seen Australia. You're, they call it a carceral sort of society, a society that's built on locking people up, whose freedoms are built on locking people up. There's a certain flourishing about them that I actually sort of like, but it helps you reflect who is free, right? How are we 
conditioned? How are we um, locked up by by some of the things that we do to others? Um, so so that's what gives me optimism. Uh, these are incredible perspectives. They're, they're perspectives I prefer to gain in different ways without brutalizing people. But um, um, but uh, but you know, there's incredible heroism there for me that I, I find uh, inspiration in and and, um, and courage from. Here, here. It reminds me a little bit of when Nelson Mandela was finally released from prison and he was asked about his hatred for his captors and for the white supremacist system that put him there. And he said, I don't feel any hatred. I don't have any hate because as long as I feel hate for them, they still have control over me. The only way yeah, I can- very interesting. The only way I can be free is, yeah, is to not have hate. And maybe it's part of Australia's journey and part of America's journey ultimately to liberate ourselves from the moral stain of um, the way that we're treating asylum seekers. I, You wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be here were it not for the fact that previous Australian generations were generous towards uh, towards people who were the most desperate people in the world. So let's hope it can continue. Kim, it's great to talk to you. Thanks so much for being with us. It's been good. Thanks, Josh. Thank you.